0: Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible God's Revealed Truth. If you would take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians with me, the book of Ephesians. I hope your Bible is like one of the members told me the other day every time they open it now, it falls to the book of Ephesians somewhere. We've only been there now for about uh, 15, 16 months. But good news is we made it all the way to the fourth chapter, the second verse. <laughs> my wife told me the other day she sure wished I'd go ahead. She's almost memorized the first six verses of the fourth book of Ephesians. And I said, now you're catching on to my plan. <laughs> but Ephesians chapter 4, if you'll be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word, let's read a passage that I hope is familiar with you. I hope you're starting to know it by heart because that's the secret is placing the word of god in your heart and let's look at the first six verses and we'll pick up where we left off last week it says this i therefore the prisoner of the lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness with long suffering bearing with one another in love enduring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace there is one body one spirit Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Father, this morning we have worshipped you through our fellowship. We have worshipped you through the singing of the songs, Father, and through our praise of you. And now as we approach your word, we have read it. We ask now that you focus our complete, undivided attention upon it. You make very little of me very much of you this morning as you speak to our hearts. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you and you may be seated. If you've been with us this year, you know that we've been looking at the characteristics of the worthy walk. We spent a little time there in the very first part of, of Ephesians chapter 4 talking about walking. We went back to Psalms 1 and looked at the fact that it instructed us to walk and to be careful where we walked to make sure that we were walking with those of like mind and like faith, as, as Paul said here, of the one spirit, one body, one God, one Father, to make sure that we were focused in our walk upon those things that were godly, those things that brought him the glory that he so deserved. And we move from that down into the fact that now he's given us some of those particular characteristics of what that walk looks like. We started just a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, looking at that very first instruction that he gave us, which was to walk with all lowliness. If you remember, we come to understand that word lowliness to mean humility. It was a word that didn't even exist until the Christians started using it because people so despised being humble because they saw this humbleness as, as this weakness, this place that Instead of standing up for who you were, that you were humbling yourself before others. So we spent a couple of weeks talking about pride, if you remember. I don't know about you, but that was a couple of hard weeks for me. That was a couple of weeks as I looked at God's Word. He really pointed out some things in my life that made me need to stop and think and say, you know what, I may have these things, or I may have accomplished these things, or I may have become something, but you know, in and of itself, it had absolutely nothing to do with me. And it was all about Jesus Christ and what He had done through me and in me. And really, we looked at that pride, and we decided that that pride, if you remember, was what really caused the first sin. And it's really the heart and the root of all sin today. Because pride set us up as wanting to be our own God and not follow the leadership of, of God, our Father, the only God. Pride really puts us at odds with God because we think that we are equal to, as Satan did, God. If you remember, Satan was cast from heaven because he wanted to be God. He was proud. He was really proud we moved from there looking at humility we spent a couple of weeks really looking at the back side of that coin where we had looked at what pride was and what we shouldn't be and we stepped into the side of the coin to start looking at that humility and we talked about some things about humility and last week if you remember I pointed out that the first thing that you need to make sure you understand about you and your Christian walk or about being humble in it is you need to know who you are in the grand scheme of things You need to understand exactly who you are. For the Bible even tells us, without being humble, we're not even saved. For he says, to be humble, you must come. You must admit that you aren't all that. You must come and say, God, I've really messed up. I've really sinned against you. The only thing that I could be proud of and shouldn't be proud of is the fact that I'm a really great sinner. You've really got to come before Christ humble and say, you know what? I've tried it my way, and look where it's got me. You know, the only thing that I need now is you, Jesus, and you need to fall at your feet humbly. He says, as a child, as a child comes seeking that gift, that protection, that salvation in our case, to be saved. So we're to come humbly. So we're supposed to stop and look at who we are. I love a statement that C.S. Lewis made, and I saw this uh, in a book I happened to be reading this week, a Mere Christianity. And uh, if you've never read that book, you might want to go back and read it. It's a a really neat book. We know C.S. Lewis for the Chronicles of Narnia and the movies and those sort of things. But, you know, he wrote a lot of stuff outside of that. And this particular book was written at a time whenever a war was going on, and he actually was on the radio. They'd asked him to go on the radio and and say some things to bring some peace and comfort to those. And what he reached for was the Bible. And he went on and talked about who who Jesus was in his life, really, is what that book is. is these radio messages, so to speak. And there was a statement that he made about humility. I'm going to read it because it's one of the greatest statements I've placed in my life in a long time. And C.S. Lewis said this, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, which is what we sometimes think it is. He says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. What a statement. See, when we look at humility... We think it's, okay, we're going to be Casper Milktoast, a humble guy, and we're not going to be anything or anything. We're, we're just going to be the low guy on the totem pole. We, we kind of look at ourselves like we're nothing. That's not what humility is. What it is is understanding who we are in Christ, but understanding that everybody else is more important than us, and we should be serving them. We should be taking what Christ has made us and putting it into their life so their life's different. What C.S. Lewis said is, don't think of yourself as nothing, just don't think of yourself at all and you'll go places. You'll be humble. and So I said that we should look at ourselves in the grand scheme of things. I think that statement really wraps up ourselves in the grand scheme of things. We should think of ourselves less. Well, if we think of ourselves less, who should we think of more? Well, that's the second thing we need to remember, and we need to be aware of who Jesus Christ is. You know, sometimes we lose sight of just who Jesus really is. In our world today, religion has taken the place of... of being awed by the presence of God. We've put so many things in place that we have to do within church and we have to do within service and so many functions and so many programs that we forget who it's about. You know, what we do as Christians is for the man whose name we bear, Christ, the Savior, the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost, of which I and you are one. See, we need to not only remember where we fit in the grand scheme, we need to remember where Christ fits. Christ is what it's all about. Matter of fact, 1 John, the book of 1 John, talks about who we are in Christ and what we should be in our walk every day because of who Christ is. 1 John chapter 2. If you're not familiar with 1 John, start flipping t- towards uh, Revelation and you'll pass it right before you get there. Book of Revelation. We'll be in 1 John chapter Two. First John 2, verse 3, it says this. Now, now by this, we know that we know Him. And what's the this? If we keep His commandments. First and foremost, to know who Christ is, it should show up in your life. If you really understand who Jesus Christ is, your life should be different. It shouldn't just be different on Sunday morning. It shouldn't just be different on Wednesday night. Shouldn't just be different when you see the pastor down the aisle at the grocery store as you're getting ready to turn in an aisle you shouldn't be on in the first place. And you kick it in high gear saying, man, I don't know how I got on this aisle as you see the pastor going by the end. It should always be different. See, if we know, if we know who Christ is, we're going to keep his commandments. He goes on to say, he who says, I know him, (laughs) I know him, and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar. Did you read that? To say, I know him, but to live like you don't makes you a liar. And he says, not only are you a liar, the truth is not even in you. That's a statement that ought to make you back up and punt. That ought to make you look at what you did yesterday. Because to raise your hand and identify as a Christian, yet not to live the example of a Christian, makes you out to be a liar and there's no truth in you. That's a scary thought. Scary thought. But he goes on. He says, but whoever keeps his word, his, being capitalized, his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought also himself to walk just as he walked. You want to know how to know you're a Christian? Look at you walk. You hear the statement all the time, we're not to judge what anybody else does. You know my feelings on that. We're not to put on a wig and get a gavel and a robe and sit at a stand and judge you to heaven or hell. No. But when I look at your life, I should be able to judge whether or not you're a Christian by where your feet are planted. You should be able to look at my life and say, Pastor, you're either on the path or you're off the path, there's no in between. You should be able to look at that one that calls himself a Christian and you should be able to see Jesus Christ in him. If you don't see Jesus Christ in him, the Bible says he's lying about who he is. See, there is no middle ground. We need to take the middle ground and do away with it. In most cases, we'd be throwing churches out with the the whole thing. But we need to do what we need to do to look like Jesus Christ. Is it easy? Absolutely not. It starts with that humility of where you are, understanding that you only are who you are because of what Christ did for you, and then understanding who Christ is, what Christ should look like in your life. I find it very interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about the gospel writers. As I was studying this, I got to thinking, some of the greatest men in the Bible are some of the most humble men I've ever met in my life. Have you ever thought about the gospels? Have you ever thought about how they talk about themselves in the Gospels? You probably haven't, because I didn't until I started studying this. I got to thinking about it. Like, for instance, I made a couple of notes. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. How does Matthew identify himself in the book of Matthew? Any idea? What does he call himself? A publican. (laughs) Here's Matthew, one of the twelve. He says he's a publican. What's a publican? (laughs) Tax click. The hated. Now, hold on. He's writing the gospel, but when he identifies himself, it's not, I'm one of Jesus' twelve. It's, I'm the lowest of the low. I'm a publican. As a matter of fact, do you remember Matthew held a feast after he came to know who Jesus Christ was? He held a feast for all the other tax collectors. Remember the story? All those tax collectors came to his house. He wanted to show them Jesus. But do you know, he never wrote about it in Matthew. I think it was Luke that wrote about it. Matthew didn't even out his own horn at what he had done to bring others to jesus christ i just find that amazing matter of fact if you look uh mark the the gospel of mark mark was actually reading best i can understand and what most theologians think under the tutelage of peter so he's writing peter's story so to speak so as he wrote this, this gospel of mark he tells some interesting things about peter But one of the things he doesn't say, or actually two of the things that I couldn't find in there at all, were two of the greatest things that Peter, as far as I'm concerned, ever said or did in the Gospels. Number one, Jesus looked at him and said, who do you say that I am? What was Peter's answer? You're Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him and said, it's on that statement, I will build my church. But do you realize that's not even in Mark, it's written somewhere else. Mark didn't even write the good things about Peter. matter of fact, do you remember Peter bailing out of a boat and walking across the water? Peter bailed out, walked on the water, yet Mark never mentions it. Did you find that kind of interesting? Do you know what, part, or what Mark does mention? The time that he denied Jesus three times. You starting to see a theme? <laughs> you starting to see a theme in the Gospels? Let's look. One more. John. <laughs> John. Who's poor old John to Jesus? John. You know, he never mentions his name. you know who he says he is? He's the one that's loved by Jesus. What I find interesting about the gospel writers, the guys who spent the most time with Jesus, saw the most things happen, saw him raise people from the dead, saw him heal bodies, uh, just the miracles of feeding folks, all those things that they saw. They could have stood up and said, I was there when Jesus raised him from the dead. I was there when he fed the 5,000. But you know what they said about themselves? (laughs) I was there when Jesus was headed to the cross. And I didn't have the courage to say that I even knew him. Humility. These gentlemen understood that they were nothing apart from a man named Jesus. You know, in the book of Ephesians, we get a pretty good picture of this man, Jesus. just going to flip back over just a couple of things that we've talked about in this book of Ephesians. Things that struck my heart. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this about this man, Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, "...for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation." having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in himself one new from the two, thus making peace. It says that Christ came so that those that had been separated from this gospel could now be one. He says in the 19th verse there of the second chapter of Ephesians, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And what is that foundation? Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. See, this Jesus... It's the cornerstone, the foundation of everything that we are. Everything that we are. I love back in the very first chapter of Ephesians, when he starts off at the beginning in verse 3 and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. Before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of His grace. Who is this Jesus Christ? He's our redemption, our forgiveness. It's through the riches. That God has placed on us through Him that we are who we are. See, we need to understand who we are. We need to understand who Christ is and that Christ is our Redeemer. I think Paul sums it up pretty well in the third chapter of Ephesians. There in the eighth verse when he says this about himself. When he's looking at himself, he's just written about who Christ is and he's putting those two things together in his mind, I believe, in the verse number eight of chapter three when he says this. To me... (laughs) who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of this mystery, which from the beginning of the ages was hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Paul says, even now, as I share the good news of Jesus Christ, I understand who I am. <laughs> I understand that I am the least of the saints. I am the least. Yet he wrote over half of the New Testament. Yet he was the least of the saints. Paul understood that he himself was nothing without Christ. And he understood that this Christ was everything. In him is where he stood. And because he stood in Christ Jesus, he was given the opportunity to share that good news. So he understood who he was, he understood who Christ was, but you know there's something else that we have forgotten as Christians this day and time, and it's who God is. You know, God has become sort of a slang word, I guess, for some folks. It's become something that we go to when there's nothing else that we can do. It's become the name that we try to use, hoping that he'll hear us and fix all those things in our world that we've messed up. It's that, Person that we read about, but we somehow feel detached from. You see people stand up all the time and say, Yeah, I believe in God, you know, and they're, if they're running for a particular office or they're opening a particular business, it becomes their theme to those that they think will attract you, know, that it will attract them to them. Yet when you look at their lives, you don't see God at all. God's become this entity. That we no longer fear. <laughs> That's bad news. That is bad news. That's bad news in a church. When you get so comfortable with God. That you no longer fear him. See we should fear God. God is so great that he with the very voice. That he spoke. Created all this. He's the God that chose. Chose because he loved God the world to wipe everyone out but one family to give us another chance yet he could have just very simply destroyed it all he's the God that made the sun stand still in the sky one day if you remember the story he's the God that sent his people into a wilderness and said don't worry when you wake up in the morning breakfast will be served when you need to walk through the wilderness to find your way I'll provide a light When it gets too bright for you, I'll cover you with a cloud. Don't you worry. When they were standing face to face to a body of water, they couldn't cross. And they could hear the hoof prints, the feet of the horse, chariots behind them, quickly rushing towards them. And they stood looking at a body of water. God said, don't you worry. I'm still God. He said, stick your staff in, put your foot in, just get ready to go. Because here in just a second, it's going to dry up and you can walk across. See, those aren't stories in the Bible. That's real life. That's God. That's God saying, I want you somewhere and I will take care of it if you'll be obedient. Don't you worry. When you are in Christ, you're all in. Not just from your side, from God's side also. See, God is so wonderful and magnificent that it's hard to grasp who he really is. I love what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6 about him. Isaiah chapter 6, the very first verse, he says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Get the picture in your head. Get the picture, Isaiah seeing God sitting on his throne. And everything that God is, is filling up this temple. This magnificent God, he's seen him. He goes on to say that and above it, above that throne, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And it said that one of those seraphim cried to the other. And he said this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Why did he say holy, holy, holy? I believe he's speaking of the Trinity of God. Your Holy Father, your Holy Son, your Holy Spirit. You are all holy. He goes on to say, the whole earth is full of his glory. Everything was filled up with this glory of the Lord. And Isaiah standing there and he goes on in verse 40, he says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Can you just see him seeing this Lord of Lords? These angelic beings worshiping smoke filling the house it was so magnificent that the very wall shook and what was Isaiah's understanding in this moment in verse 5 he says so I said woe is me for I am undone he says because I am a man of unclean lips I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. What was Isaiah saying? I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner and I live with a whole bunch of sinners. When he saw the magnificence of God, the first thought on his mind was, I'm a sinner. How do we know that? Because he goes on to say, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When's the last time you've looked on God? And when you've looked at Him through the Word, that the first thing that came to your mind is the sin in your life. You see, when you really know who God is and you put Him in the rightful place, to be in His presence convicts you. It brings you to your knees. You want to talk about humility? Think of who you are to God. Think about His glory It's awesomeness. I know no other word to use. And think about your sin. See, that was Isaiah's picture of himself when he saw this Lord. To bring it into the New Testament, look with me over to Luke 18. With that picture in mind, let's see what it looks like in action. Luke 18, chapter... uh, Chapter eighteen, verse number nine. It says this, and also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. It's the church folks. It's getting ready to talk to the church folks, the ones that say, "I'm there every Sunday." Make an not if you come on Wednesday. Matter of fact, I've started coming to Sunday school because I just want to show God how good I am. I give to the poor, to offering plate passes, I drop things off. He's getting ready to talk to that group. <laughs> the ones that think because of themselves that they are righteous. He says this two men, up, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. It says the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even. That tax collector. Can you see him? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. See the eye? He's got an eye problem. (laughs) Then it says, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest, saying, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. When's the last time that you come into the presence of God and you forgot about all those things you had done for him and you saw yourself for who you really are, a sinner in need of forgiveness? Unworthy to even look God in the eye to come and just ask, please forgive me this one more time. That tax collector would not even look him in the eye. Look what Jesus said about this. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself, he'll be exalted. You see what Jesus says about our walk, our worthy walk, and how humility is the hinge point. It's the hinge point in your salvation. Being willing to admit that you need a Savior is a humbling experience. But you're not saved once and sinless forever. You're saved and hopefully being sanctified and less sinful each and every day. But sin still creeps in. But you know the problem with that in the church? We get to be like that Pharisee. We don't want anybody to know that there's little blemishes in our life. That there's little things, sometimes big things, that we challenge or are challenged with daily. We want to keep that little thing in our coat pocket. And one day when we get the opportunity, we'll bring it up when nobody's looking and we'll get it settled with God. It's not what Jesus said. Jesus said you come humbly to be saved and you remain humble. And I think the bulk of that remaining humble is understanding who you are, (laughs) that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That Jesus Christ, understanding who He is, that He's the only way, the truth, and the life. Only through Him can you receive forgiveness from a Father in a right relationship. Only through understanding His death on the cross and the blood that was shed to wash away your sins can you be in right relationship with God. So understanding you're a sinner, understanding that Jesus is the only Savior, and understanding it's a gracious, gracious God that provided that gift. It's an awesome God that at any minute could decide, that this life is over. He could even before today is done, before this message is finished, blow the horn and put a stop to it all. Have we been humbled before God? I'm gonna do something this morning that might get me a deacon's meeting, but that's okay. I'll explain it to you guys in a little bit. There's a very humbling, humbling experience in the Bible. One of the most humbling experiences that I think I have ever read. It's not just an experience that's humbling from God's point of view, but it's an experience that's humbling from the participants that day in what happened in this particular city. We are by no means instituting a new uh, thing in the church. But I think it would be better if you visually saw what humility looks like in life. It happens to be about this time of year that this story comes about. It's in John thirteen in your Bible. Go home and read that. But it's the story in John thirteen, when Jesus is gathered together with his disciples in the upper room, he is gathered in this upper room with them for a couple of purposes. Number one, it's Passover time for the upper part of Israel this particular night, as a matter of fact. The lower part will participate in Passover the next day. So he's gathering in this room with them and he's sitting around this table. You've seen pictures painted of it as John's leaning on his breast as they're sitting there and everything's spread out on the table. But before they get to that Passover meal, they do something. They gather together and they fellowship. They eat one with another. It was customary in that time. That they would eat, they would, they would rejoice, and they would spend time together before they did that Passover meal. He had sent them ahead to prepare this room and they had gathered in this room and they had sat around this table. And if you remember, they walked everywhere they went. Generally, they would have servants there to serve them. In this particular time, we don't see them in the Word. And I think by the circumstances of what happens, they probably were not present. It was probably just these 13 men, his 12 disciples, and himself. And they gathered at this table. And John 13 tells us that Jesus was there and that he loved those 12 men. Matter of fact, the word that's used is he loved them to the end. All the way to the end. So you know what he's pointing towards. They have yet to fully understand that he's about to die on a cross. He's there to let them know that that's about to happen. But they as of yet do not understand. Judas is there with him. Also says in the word, right at the very part, first part of John 13, that Judas, having made up his mind what he would do, that Satan entered him. Here we sit in the presence of God. Satan enters Judas. It's an amazing thought. Judas has not yet left the room at this point. He's still with him. They're eating. And I find it very interesting because they're partaking of this meal, and suddenly something comes to Jesus' mind. I don't think it was a sudden reflection. I think it was something that was planned and orchestrated and put in place by God for a particular reason. Jesus understood that there had been no humility shown There had been nothing of any acceptance. There had been no servant there to show kindness to them as they came. For the custom of the day was, when they sat at the table to eat, it wasn't in a chair like we do now. They reclined. They kind of laid around this table. So as you laid at the table, your head would be one direction. Your feet, obviously, would be the opposite. And to fit enough people in, you would most times be laying right next to someone's feet as you ate your dinner. For some, that's a disgusting thought now, isn't it? Think about your neighbor who owns the pig farm, who comes straight off the pig farm over to your house for lunch. And he doesn't own any boots. He's been working in the pig farm barefooted all day. Get the picture. Here's Jesus, reclined around this table. Thirteen men. Nobody has been gracious and washed their feet. What does John 13 say that Jesus does? It says, Jesus arose. He arose from where he was, and he took off his outer garment, his cloak, and he laid it aside for a purpose. Purpose was to demonstrate to them humility, in what essence, servitude. And he was about to do something for them that was going to not only be humbling for him, it was going to be very humbling for them. I'm going to, you mind coming and helping me, brother? I preset this up. I didn't, uh, didn't want to embarrass anyone, if you'd be so kind. I'll help you up here so you don't fall off the stage or anything. I don't want to cause (laughs) damage as we get started. If you'll just sit right there for me. So it says that Jesus, out of humbleness, he removed his outer coat. He laid that coat aside, symbolizing something was about to change in what they were doing. Could you see the men that were gathered trying to figure out what is Jesus doing? This is kind of strange. Never seen this in a meal before. Maybe they were thinking he was preparing because they were going to do Passover, that he was disrobing and maybe getting ready to serve the Passover meal. And see, they were happy to be there with Jesus. They had been rejoicing in this meal together. They had been having a good time. But it says that Jesus arose and he removed his outer coat. And he took for himself a towel. And it says that he girded himself with a towel. I just happened to grab one of our towels from the back back here that we use and it says that he took this towel and that he girded himself which would have meant that he would have probably placed that in a belt around his waist so that there it hung with him. Could you see those twelve still trying to figure out what is Jesus doing? So he takes that towel and girds himself and then it says that he gets this water Customarily at the time, there would have been a pot set by the door as they entered. And that's where they would have had their feet washed. At this washing station, so to speak. So Jesus must have went over with something and took water from this wash pot. And it says that he went around to each of those disciples. And that he nailed at their feet. And that he washed their feet. I find this interesting. Judas is still there. Judas hasn't left the room at this particular time. Judas doesn't leave until after this. Jesus nailed at the feet and washed the feet of the man who was getting ready to turn him over to be murdered. Humility? Give me a break. That would be like the executioner coming to get you to cut your head off. And you say, before you do that, do you mind if I show you a little graciousness and wash your feet? Humility beyond all example. Jesus went around this table to each of the men. It doesn't say much about 11 of the 12. Nothing, in all honesty, until he gets to a 12. This man named Peter. Peter's mouth was shaped like a foot, do you remember? Because he was constantly sticking his foot in his mouth. He was the one that, no matter the question that was answered, he was the first or asked. He was the first to jump up with an answer. I'll do it. There's no way I'll do that. I'll be there with you. There's no way I'll ever deny you. (laughs) Then the cock crowed three times. (laughs) This is Peter. He comes to Peter, and he kneels at his feet, and he goes to wash his feet. And do you remember what Peter said? Peter said, "You're not washing my feet. No, this is not going to happen." Why do you think Peter said that? Was it because he was embarrassed about his feet? Was his toenails painted the wrong color or something? What do you think? It wasn't that at all. I think Peter understood who he was. He understood whose presence he was in. He understood the one that should have already done this was him. <laughs> that the Lord should have been reclined at the table and he should have been serving him. He thought about Who he was in the eyes of Christ. Who he was in that example. Was being served by the one who deserved to be served. So we see the humility of Jesus. But then we see the humility of Peter start rising to the surface. For Jesus looked at him and what did Jesus tell him? If you're not washed of me, you're not one of me. In Roger's terms either with me or you're without me. And Peter says, in that case, don't just wash my feet. Don't miss my head and get my hands too. And Jesus tells him, no, if you've been washed completely by me, you'll never need another bath. Occasionally, you're going to need the dust of the world knocked off. And that's all you're ever going to need again because I'm enough. Jesus knelt at each of them's feet and washed their feet. Humbly. Today, let that picture reside in your mind as I do that for a brother who has said he would allow this to happen. Do you think it's a humbling experience to wash someone's feet? Sit in front of a congregation and allow it to be done to you. It's humbling. It's the way we should serve God. It's God being the most important thing, and we are nothing. So it says that Jesus knelt down and it says that he prepared his water and he took the basin he took the water and he washed their feet because their feet had been dirty from the world because they had walked so far in the dust and that symbolizes That symbolizes us in this world. For you see, each of us, no matter how good a life we live, we live in a world full of sin. No matter how good you walk, you're going to get dusty. And it says that Jesus stopped and he washed their feet. And he says that he took that towel that he had been girded with, And he dried their feet. That each of them would again be clean. That each of them would have that world washed off. And he says that that's all we need. All we need is a small washing. Once we know him as our Lord. So I ask you this this morning. Are you covered in dust? Do you first and foremost know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you don't, it's not your feet that needs to be washed, it's your entire body, your entire life. How does that happen? It happens by going, you know, I've messed up. There's only one way out. And the Bible tells me that one way is Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, who came to die on a cross for your sins. And believing that what he did was sufficient to pay for your sins. I believe it. you know why? Because God placed him in a tomb. And he rolled a stone in front of that tomb. Three days later, the tomb was found to be empty. That was God's stamp of approval that what Jesus had done on that cross would pay for your sin every one of you, it would pay for all sins of all time. Do you know that fact in your life? Not have you heard the story, not have you read it, not have you seen it on a felt board, do you believe it in your heart that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? If you've never made that decision, today could be the day. Today could be the day that you've been washed from the tip of your head to the soles of your feet by the precious blood of Jesus Christ.